I've entitled this message, uh, The Gospel is a Message Best Served Whole, thinking about uh, the phrase or the expression that revenge is a dish best served cold, and um, trying to play a little onto that theme. Uh, If you've grown up in church world, Jonah is probably not a story you're unfamiliar with. It's interesting, the stories that we like to do for like children's ministry, where it's like, hey, we're going to talk about Noah and the ark and how like everybody else on planet earth died or, you know, these kinds of things. Or there's this guy that didn't really agree with God about what he needed to do. So God sent a fish to swallow him. Yay. And I was reminded recently, uh, recently being like two minutes ago um, by Caleb Ledbetter that in the Veggie Tales depiction of this, the wickedness that was uh, portrayed was embodied by slapping people with a fish. Anybody remember this? This was the great wickedness and uh, immorality that was there for the people of Nineveh. Uh, I do not have a fish. If someone else has a fish perhaps to slap me with, that can be perhaps later in the liturgy, maybe hopefully after I am not giving the homily. So, Um, We are also in this season of epiphany uh, that uh, has been going on and will continue for several weeks. And so I think epiphany invites us to question and to wonder about where we might see God, how God might show up to us in unexpected places and people and situations. And oftentimes those who have put together the lectionary are also thinking about, and then what is our response to God showing up? How will we adjust our lives? How will we live more in harmony with love, with truth, with justice, with peace, with this way of Jesus in light of having seen God in some place we had not seen God before, or perhaps glimpsing a different dimension or aspect of the divine in a place you've seen the divine other places before, but just not that particular aspect in this particular way. Um, When we think of Jonah, I think we tend to think of either the well or the big fish um, that Jonah tends to bring us forward. And right before I moved back to Austin from San Antonio and uh, began serving in this position, I went to Chicago and I went to the shed, which is this massive aquarium there. And these are a few pictures uh, that I took. And when I was thinking of Jonah and thinking about what I would tend to think of, I think of something like this, or I think of SeaWorld, which was a fun place that we would go to get entertained until we saw a documentary that told us it was not a fun place for us to go get entertained. Um, And then we stopped and thinking about, for us, if you're around my age, for a good chunk of your life until maybe like the last seven or so years, um, even big animals, big fish, big whales were things that we would largely see in tanks and they would be doing shows for us. They would be performative. It was something that we were like, ooh, and ah, and being reminded that for the ancient Near Eastern mindset, this was something terribly, incredibly polar opposite different, that large bodies of water represented the unknown, the mysterious, chaos, something that could not be controlled or predicted. No one knew what kind of beast or animal might come out from the depths of the sea. There seems to be some good Jungian psychology happening here too, but beyond that, 
just this primal fear of what, what is there? We don't know, we can't see it, and we're in a place where we can't easily run. A storm can easily find you and capsize you, and you will be left to your own defenses, which are almost nothing. Uh, humanity had heard tales of these gigantic beasts for much of its own history. And in lieu of horror films, we can imagine all the kinds of creatures that mythology imagined were there underneath. And so for Jonah, um, this encounter with the big fish is not a trip to SeaWorld. It is something much more akin to what if the worst thing you could ever imagined actually did happen. Now, I spend a lot of time with a therapist who is continually trying to remind and reframe for me that I spend a lot of my own time with anxiety and worry, mostly connected to relationships um, around the worst ever happening and that like 98% of the time, the worst or even anything remotely near the worst does not happen, right? So I'm constantly being reminded to reframe that and to acknowledge that you can spend a lot of energy catastrophizing and worst case scenarioing and almost always, if you look back on your life, like 98% or more of that energy was on things that never even remotely came close to happening. But this is a curious story of where we could imagine some of the things, the stories that Jonah might have grown up hearing and being told. And perhaps even if we don't know if Jonah had kids, but perhaps telling to Jonah's kids, the very worst thing did happen that this creature that everyone had said, oh, you've got to be careful, don't go to the sea, did find him and did swallow him, that Jonah has just experienced and undergone a form of trauma, whatever this means, however we understand this, whether you were using this through a lens of literalism or myth, that whatever this means for Jonah, he has spent three days in the belly of a fish, again, because he was just not entirely sure he wanted to be in line with what he sensed God was calling him to do. And I think many of us may have also grown up with this sort of terror, this sense that God is going to call you, so be careful because you might really enjoy doing something that's over here and that probably pays pretty well and is like nice and lots of people do, but if you get a little too serious about your faith, God's gonna call you to be like, really poor and probably send you to some place remotely. It's kind of like the musical, The Book of Mormon. And, you know, if you've anticipated or if you had a chance to take that in, that something like that's going to happen to you. Uh, and that if you somehow try to resist God's will, that somehow God is going to conquer you or God is going to hunt you down. And though I do believe God is a lover of our beings, that God uh, does desire for us to experience the fullness of intimacy and connection with God and one another, uh, with the planet, with the cosmos. I don't know that it has this uh, kind of a salty vibe that sometimes we can uh, have of this, like, you're not going to be able to escape, and I'm going to hunt you down, and it's going to happen. But what do we do uh, with Jonah? If, if you, like Jonah, had just lived through the worst thing imaginable, how do you think your life would be different? Would it, it be sort of like Bill Murray's character, uh, John Cross, in the 80s film Scrooged, uh, who is playing sort of the Ebenezer Scrooge-like character who's going to interrupt an 80s global telecast and spread a little Christmas cheer because now, finally, he has realized the true meaning of Christmas 
this is often what we imagine, that if we were to see and somehow survive through the worst thing that we could imagine, that we would be filled with amazing gratitude, with an empathy, with an openness, with a sense of generosity towards others that we would want to then reciprocate and share that out in the world. But I can also imagine how for Jonah, this was incredibly traumatic and how when he is spit up on to the shore that is near Nineveh, after having already sort of said, I'm not about this, this is not my life, um, how that could be a hard thing to work through and what it means. Now, there are lots of different people that have questions about what are we to do with this story? Is, is Jonah the protagonist? Is Jonah kind of this anti-hero? Is, is Jonah the example of what we are to not do? And I, I tend to lean more in that latter category. But I also think we have to be careful of the not just turning him into a cartoon villain. They were just like, oh, silly Jonah. Don't you know? Just do what God wants and everything's going to be okay. Because many of us have done the best that we can and know how to do what God wants and more than once, perhaps many times over and over again, things were not okay. It did not end happily ever after. And we struggle like Jonah does with the dissonance of that. Our passage begins that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Uh, Almost all of this has happened already in chapter one, where God has said to Jonah, I want you to go. Here's what that's going to mean. The only difference really um, in this is that in this time, God says, the message that I tell you, where in the first time that we hear this, uh, God essentially says, cry out to them about their wickedness. So the message seems a little bit more pointed and specific. And it could be, we don't know, that that God is just referring to, yeah, that message that I told you about earlier, you need to cry out to them about their wickedness. And if so, Jonah does that really well. Um, but it also could be that after three days in the belly of a big fish, God is inviting Jonah to an openness, to a relationship, to a sensitivity that might say, do you have some empathy now that perhaps you did not have? Are you seeing the people of Nineveh in a different way than you did? And would you be open to a new message that I will tell you? And I wonder what stories we have told ourselves or have had other people tell us about our identities, about our worth, about our sense of belonging, about the trajectory of our life or our community that just seem baked in and seem like, yeah, that ticket is punched. And if part of this season of epiphany might be an invitation to wonder, but is it really? Do I really have to hold that as that this is all things will ever be? Is God perhaps inviting an epiphany of imagination that allows us to see ourselves, to see our community, to see the trajectory of who we are and how we live with and for one another in solidarity, in new, inspiring, and life-giving ways? Do we have to allow the first message that we heard to be the only and last message that we heard, or can we hear something new? There is this second time, which I do think uh, whoever the writer of Jonah was is kind of like, 
underlining and kind of like laughing. <laughs> like, for the second time, Jonah, let's try this again. You can imagine another Bill Murray, like Groundhog Day kind of thing. Okay, here we go. Let's see if you can figure it out this time, uh, what it's going to look like for you to be faithful in this way. Here, I believe we see that the divine love envelops our pain. I don't believe that God's love tries to take away our pain, that it tries to erase or cover up or numb us to our pain, but I do think it meets and envelops us and companions us in our pain and suffering. I don't personally tend to have a theology that believes that suffering is something that God wills or sends towards us for us to experience, but we in our own humanness find our way into suffering enough on our own, and I do believe that the divine love envelops us there. Many of you probably know this about the story of Jonah, but in case we have forgotten, Nineveh will become the capital of Assyria, and Assyria is the nation that would come to ultimately conquer, destroy, and take into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel. And though we call like the northern and southern kingdom of Israel once there was this sort of civil war after the reign of Solomon in Hebrew history, these kingdoms were not like equal. Like the northern kingdom was the vast majority. Like it would be, we love ourselves, Texas. But if Texas ever did somehow secede from the United States, it would be like, okay, if they called it like northern United States and then Texas is like the southern United States. It's like, yeah, these things are not equivalent. As much as we love ourselves, we're like, yeah, hey, we got our own ERCOT, which I know none of us really feel that way. Um, right, like this would be the division, right? This is the Northern Kingdom versus Southern Kingdom. And Assyria would come to conquer all of the Northern Kingdom. And their process for anyone that did not die was full cultural and religious assimilation, so much so that some writers talk about the lost 10 tribes of Israel because so much of what had historically at that point been Israel um, essentially lost all sense of identity or connection uh, culturally, ethnically, religiously. Um, they became Assyrian themselves. And so you can imagine then why there is incredible animosity, hatred, resentment in the hearts of Israelites towards Assyria. They had been the ones who had brought so much violence and damage. And we can think of numerous parallels to our contemporary history and to history everywhere in between as well. I want to think on behalf of Jonah and on behalf of us, what it looks like for us to sit in our pain and how we at times resist divine love enveloping us in our pain. I don't believe that this means, as I've said earlier, that we are then shut off from it, that we deny it, that we pretend like it doesn't hurt or that it's hard or that we don't deeply miss that person or that we didn't wish we didn't, that we could still have the ability that we have lost physically or whatever the thing may be that is causing your suffering or pain. I don't think it is that, but I do think it is a both and way of being able to both be honest and present to the pain that we are feeling and also to be open for, to illumination, to light, to grace, to love, to hope that can find us in the middle of our suffering and pain. Uh, was challenged by uh, 
a group of people, some of whom are, or most of whom are in uh, this community, to consider uh, the gift of contemplative prayer afresh, that perhaps it can be easy uh, to be skeptical and to think about our lives in a way that sort of disenchants our world, our faith from anything that is more substantive. And so I will just say, who knows where it will go, but for me so far in January, I have recommitted myself to a more regular practice of silence and solitude, of being present to that. And part of what I feel like that is opening up in me again is this space to be both and, that I don't have to see anybody as holy, evil, or holy good, including myself, and I don't have to see any situation as that either, that it opens up ability to both be present to pain and to still enjoy the gifts of God's goodness that I can find all around me. And I wonder if that's what's happening to Jonah or what he was invited into in these three days in the well. We do have in scripture, chapter two is devoted to some psalm-like prayers or laments that Jonah uh, apparently composed or cried out uh, in the middle of being in this fish. But even if we take all of that as literal, that would have taken about 40 seconds for, for Jonah to say what's in that chapter. And so I can imagine that perhaps the rest of the time, it's like, well, I'm here, it's cold, it's wet, this acid doesn't feel very good. I don't know if fish have acid in their stomachs, I don't really know how that works. Um, but, uh, uh, and there's nothing I can do. I'm out of control in this situation. Uh, and if that allowed Jonah both to lament what he was experiencing and also to be open, but at least I'm not dead, right? If in that culture, the thought was a creature is going to come and swallow you, I think the thought was, and you're dead. And I wonder if Jonah could, this is really not the ideal situation, would really like to be on land as soon as possible. And it's amazing to me that somehow I'm going through this immense amount of pain and I'm finding a strength to survive in it that I did not imagine was possible, that I did not believe would be there for me. And divine love envelops us in our pain. Continuing on in the text, Jonah 3, verse 3. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. This mirrors verse Three from chapter 1, where Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And again, underscoring at the end of that verse, away from the presence of the Lord. So this time, Jonah is shifting his behavior and what he's doing. He is now no longer running from what God has called Jonah to, but instead, at least kind of seems, I would say, probably more resigned to the reality rather than like excited about this reality. Um, that this is what is Jonah's to do. Um, and again, when we think about the deep resentment that Jonah would likely have held um, to this Assyria, it makes sense. Uh, I think this is intended to be a text that encourages us to interrogate our own sense of nationalism uh, and the ways that we as a country might want to see ourselves as superior, or that any country might want to see itself as superior and see whoever it views as enemy as just collateral damage that's all about let's just rally around ourselves and our own safety. I think this text really invites us to interrogate that. 
But I also think it invites us to interrogate the resentment that lays at the heart of that. Um, I recently had a chance to watch the film on Netflix, Rustin, that's about the life of Bayard Rustin, um, who was a civil rights leader born in Westchester, uh, Pennsylvania. He was raised as a Quaker, so had lots of exposure to more contemplative silence uh, in worship and in formation uh, for, for his early faith was dedicated to nonviolence and is considered to be one of the people who really didn't introduce Martin Luther King Jr. to nonviolent practice, but when Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, started to become friends, he was the one that said, hey, you're, you're preaching nonviolence, but I see a lot of guns around here. Uh, and I don't know what we intend to do with these guns, but uh, it doesn't seem like we intend to do something nonviolently. And I'm not here to prescribe nonviolence to any particular person and how I interpret it. But Bayer did invite Martin Luther King Jr. into a question around that. And Martin Luther King Jr. apparently changed his relationship um, to, to guns in that regard uh, to be more in line with how he understood nonviolent practice to be. But these two men um, who had become good friends and who had partnered together um, in incredibly great ways often found a friction in their relationship because even in the 50s and in the 60s, Bayard Rustin was also an out gay man. And particularly in that culture, I mean, still, I would say in our culture, but particularly in that culture, that was something that was not incredibly tolerable. And so there was a point earlier in their friendship when uh, other civil rights leaders were threatening uh, that if Dr. King continued to partner with Bayard Rustin, that uh, they would expose this and that they would spread rumors that there was even more than friendship happening between Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin and that this would sort of torpedo um, the civil rights movement. And Bayard put in his resignation with the expectation and hope that it would be refused, and it was not. Um, and this created, at the very least, some tension, some animosity between two formerly good friends, Martin Luther King Jr. and of Bayard Rustin. And if you watch this film on Netflix, it's all kind of headed towards the March on Washington, which Bayard Rustin was the architect of and the person who was able to make that. I mean, he had lots of great people working alongside him, but in terms of the visionary for it and the administrator of it was the one who pulled it off in just a few weeks. Um, he realizes that he's going to have to work through his resentment with Dr. King, that apart if they allow this resentment to continue to exist, they are never going to get together and collaborate again. They will never have a chance for reconciliation and repair, and that the civil rights movement, the black community, and the United States of America will be worse for it. And so Bayard Rustin goes on this journey to Atlanta to talk with his former friend Martin Luther King and to seek out what it would look like for them to repair their relationship. And pivotally, it's, you know, the, all the tricks happen again and again as they are working then towards the March on Washington. The civil rights leaders essentially demand again that uh, Bayard Rustin not be included in this or else. Uh, and this time, the civil rights leaders essentially stand beside 
Martin Luther King, or besides Bayard Rustin, rather, uh, and say, no, he's going to continue to be the person who is the architect of this movement. Uh, there was not just a, I feel really bad about the past, but also a change in behavior and relationship to it. And I wonder who are some of the hardest people for us to offer forgiveness and compassion to? Uh, you might think of... Uh, an in-law, <laughs> or you might think of someone that you encounter on social media or politically. Um, but I think for many of us, the hardest person is honestly ourselves. Um, to forgive and to welcome younger versions of ourselves who probably were much more in line with the things that now really irritate us, that really grind us, who were much more complicit in systems than we are now, and what does it look like to allow all of that to be enveloped by the divine love? This divine love also extends to our enemies. Our lectionary skips over verses six through nine. And I can see why, like really all the major action has happened. Jonah has preached like the worst message ever and miraculously had like the best response ever to it. Um, but in verses six through nine, what we, what we miss is that after the entire like, city of Nineveh has repented, apparently the last holdout was the king of Nineveh. And the king of Nineveh decides also to repent and to write a declaration telling all the people that they should repent as well. Again, the people who have already so repented. Like if this was ever someone who's reading like the political tea leaves and saying like, oh, okay, well, if 99% of my constituents have uh, decided to repent, I am going to be on team, let's repent. And I, I don't know King, the king of Nineveh's heart, but this is, it just reads really hilariously. At the very least, I think it's, a, it's showing us the power of grassroots movements from uh, the bottom up rather than from a trickle down, top down uh, kind of mentality. Um, but there is this interesting uh, question that the king of Nineveh says in verse 9. He says, who knows? God may relent and change their mind. God may turn from fierce anger so that we do not perish. Uh, this who knows mirrors um, what the non-Jewish, the Gentile people in chapter 1 who were in the boat with Jonah and ultimately throw him over uh, say as well, when they say, perhaps God will spare us uh, so that we do not perish. There is this wonderment that perhaps God can still do more and is still up to something in our world. And we can find it even in the voice of the most unlikely, this person in power, the king of Nineveh, this Gentile ship crew that are both wondering, what if we prayed to God? What if we turn to God? Might that form us and shape us in a way that truly could make a difference in our world? I wonder how we might creatively embody good news towards our enemies. What does it mean for us to be good news? I'm thinking again, first and foremost, to ourselves, because I'm guessing for many of us, the person we have the hardest time forgiving and offering compassion to is ourselves. But then also those other people that came up in your mind that you thought of, what does it look like creatively for us to do the work inwardly 
and outwardly to embody that. To be, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your divine parent. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or not even the tax collectors doing that. What does it look like? Because it seems to me that Jesus puts near the heart of his spirituality and movement this idea that the rubber meets the road when we think about our relationship to love and mercy toward ourselves and to those who seem to be opposed to us. How do we express that? How do we extend that? And finally, then what we see is that the divine love shifts perspective and Verse 10, when God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity that God had said they would bring upon the Ninevites, and God did not do it. The divine love invites us to shift our perspective towards ourselves, towards others, towards God. If this text, particularly for those of us who want to believe God's word literally is to be taken literally, then it even shifts God and changes God and how God approaches the world and us too. And so what does it look like to allow through practices of prayer, the season of epiphany and beyond ourselves to be opened up, to be saturated in a love that accompanies us in our pain, that extends itself to our enemies and that might shift our perspective about how we see the world. Donna Shaper says, this story reminds us that we should not be surprised by a sudden change of direction. Jonah heads out for Tarshish and ends up in Nineveh. The once proud and powerful king takes off the royal robe and puts on sackcloth. Even God changes God's own mind about the fate of the city. Everyone in the story repents, including God. Everyone experiences a surprising change of direction. This passage brings to mind the Jewish proverb, whenever someone says, I have a plan, God laughs. And so I want to invite us to consider what it looks like this season of Epiphany, to hold space, perhaps to re-engage in a practice of taking some time for silence and openness to God in prayer through contemplation or through whatever practices of contemplative prayer um, you find most meaningful to hold space to find this divine love that can disrupt us. Will you pray with me? Divine disruptor, our minds wander, our hearts waver, and our beings quiver. We feel our inward distraction and division. We sense our ache for belonging, even as we wrestle with resentment. May we sense divine love embracing our pain, especially where we are most tender. May we sense divine love extending to our enemies, inviting creative responses, asserting dignity and justice. May we sense divine love shifting perspective, our own, our enemies, and even our gods. We pray this in the name of the God of unbelievable compassion, the nonviolent one who extends mercy, and the spirit of second chances. Amen.